back to The Purpose of Wealth, The Secrets to Protecting and Growing Intergenerational Wealth, brought to you by Mutual Trust. I'm Narelle Hooper, your host. Thanks to the research by the University of Adelaide Business School and Mutual Trust, we now know that wealthy families have a significant positive social and economic impact on our nation. But lasting impact depends on those families going the distance, prospering over generations. An important part of prospering, though, is having open conversations about the challenges of wealth transfers, as well as sharing family history. And we're going to do that right now when we speak to a living legend of one of Australia's most significant retail empires. My memories of going shopping in my with my mother were we had to put on little white socks and patent leather shoes and little velvet collars, coats and hats and gloves, the whole thing going into shop. The name is as familiar to Australians as Vegemite, but it's been around for a lot longer. In fact, the very first Maya store opened more than 120 years ago in Bendigo. How has the Maya family endured for so long? You'll find out from Lady Marigold Merlin Bailey Saudi herself, the daughter of Dame Merlin and Sydney Maya, one of the nation's most visionary and generous entrepreneurs, whose business and philanthropic legacy is now entering its fifth generation. Born in San Francisco, Lady Saudi is the youngest of their four children. She has four children of her own and has had a remarkable life story and impact in her own right in business and entrepreneurship, philanthropy, and as Lieutenant Governor for Victoria. For decades, she was a director of the Meyer Family Companies, and in her 90s, not long ago, she completed her own lockdown project, working on a book on her life, Marigold, Milestones and Memories, Lady Saudi, AC, with Stella Barber. She's also maintained a family tradition of being a dog lover. Lady Saudi, welcome. It's such a pleasure to have you with us. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Now, the story of your father, Sydney, and your mother, Merlin, is quite famous. A young Jewish migrant from Krichev in Belarus to Bendigo in the late 1800s, who built the Maya retail empire, now a household name, and was madly in love with Merlin of the Bellew family, itself a phenomenal entrepreneurial migrant story. Can we first spend a few minutes reflecting on your memories of their story and impact? My early memories of my father were very few, I regret to say, because I was six when he died in 1934. But in fact, because they travelled for six months every year, they were only with their children for six months of each year that he was alive. So my memories are very scarce of him. So it's more about my mother that I have many, many, many memories. For the Bailey memories, there are many. My mother's mother was Agnes Bailey. She was married to George Bailey. He was one of the 14 children that James Bailey produced when he came to Australia. And George was not in the business world and the finance world that some of his brothers became but he built and ran a beautiful hotel at Queenscliff. So my mother grew up in Queenscliff. As a little girl, she lived in the hotel with her father and mother. And this is the very first time that she actually met Sydney Maher was when she was six years old. But, of course, she has no memories of that. During the Second World War, she was knitting with her knitting circle. It was about all she could do, and that's how she met Sydney. She rang him up one day. And he said, and he said, yes, 
I'd like to make an appointment, Mr. Ma. I'd like to come and see you. Yes, Mrs. Bailey, of course. So she went and she said, I've come to ask you if you will give me some knitting wool for my knitting circle. So he gave her a whole tartan of the knitting wool and she went away happy. And she fell for it at that meeting and she asked him to go uh, house in St. Kilda one Sunday for tea. And what did you know of the story of Sydney coming to Australia and his work as an entrepreneur? Sydney grew up in the Jewish pogroms in Kritchev in Belarus. Whenever he could, he used to work in his mother's little store in Kritchev. It was a little store that sold pots and pans and useful things for the house. And everything he started to learn about retailing, he learned from his own mother in Kritchev. So at 17, he managed to get his parents out of Kritchev. He got them down to Odessa, and at Odessa they got on a ship and they sailed off to Palestine. And he never, ever saw them again, which was very sad. Having put them on the ship at Odessa, he turned around and he walked or somehow got himself overland to Antwerp, where he got on a ship, sailed to Australia. And he landed at Princess Pier, South Melbourne, at the age of 19, with two shillings in his pocket. His older brother had already come to Australia, so they teamed up and they moved to Bendigo to live. And in Bendigo, he started hawking. He walked from house to house with packs of goodies on his back, selling them to the ladies of Bendigo, who I understand were enchanted with him. He had the most wonderful blue eyes. They were enchanted with him, and they always bought something from him. Eventually, he got enough money, and he got a cart, and eventually he got a horse to pull the cart, and he went from door to door. And he was making money by then, and so he and his brother decided to buy a little shop in Bendigo. So they actually bought the shop and set it up as Maya Bendigo. And that became the first of the Maya retail empire that we know of today. Correct. What are your earliest memories of visiting the Maya stores? Visiting the Maya stores with my mother when I was about 11, probably. My memories of going shopping in Maya with my mother were we had to put on little white socks and patent leather shoes and little velvet collars and coats and hats and gloves, the whole thing, dress up, going into shop. And my mother would go and I'd be hanging onto her hand and she would be greeted by her husband, but greeted by all the staff in the store who all got to love her. And that was always exciting for me to see how welcome she always was in the store. And a different level of service than we get today in many of our retail establishments. (laughs) (laughs) Very different now. Help yourself. (laughs) And your mother, Dame Merlin Meyer, what are some of your strongest memories of her? My earliest memories of my mother really were after my father died. She was only married to my father for 14 years and she was 34 when he died. I have early memories of my mother including the day she told me he had died. We were at Sorrento at the time. So she was young, of course. She was pretty. She was interested in everything that he did. She was always quite sure that even when they were traveling away from us, we children were very well looked after. We were never forgotten for one minute. And whilst they were away, they were constantly in touch with us. So my memories of her as a child were really from quite a distance in a sense. Your father, Sydney, died 
suddenly he was walking and just slumped to the ground. Merlin practically reinvented herself and carried the business for decades after that. Was that something you think came naturally to her? Well, I think she was passionately in love with the business and proud of the business and proud of what her husband had done with the business. And although she had wonderful help, she was always totally involved with what was happening. She never actually physically worked in the store, but it was her store, you know. She had an office in the store eventually, and she would go in there probably at least three or four days a week. She was called the mother of the store eventually, yes, later on, because, you know, from 34 to 82 when she died, all those years she was passionate about the store. Your mother was an entrepreneurial woman, clearly, in an era when it was frowned upon for wealthy women to be in business. What are your recollections of those attitudes and how she responded to those attitudes? One of her Bailey uncles, Arthur Bailey, who was a widow when I first remember him, he more or less took our family on board. Merlin was his niece, and he sort of almost became a father figure for us. I don't think uh, Uncle Arthur Bailey, who we, we adored, of course, would have liked her to actually been working in the store, but he appreciated her great love of it, and he supported her in everything that she wanted to do. He travelled with us when we went to America in 1939. He came with us. We travelled in America for about until uh, the war broke out, actually. So I don't think it was until the... Second World War, where so many women went into war service, into military service, into factory service, into rural service. They just got so involved in the war. That old idea that women didn't work certainly went out the window during the Second World War. During the Depression years before the war, the women, all they could do was try and get enough money somewhere to feed their family and their, their husbands to get a job. Your mother was a trailblazer, ahead of her times in many ways. What are your recollections of that? The children's kindergarten crèche in the store, that was actually in my father's time. It might have been her idea, probably was. And the dental clinic in the store where they had 6,000 customers, that was after my father's time, but that was probably her influence again on the managing director of the store at the time. Her idea was behind the 25-year club, those who'd been employed in the store for 25 years. That was very much her idea, I'm sure. She didn't talk much to me about those things. So I have to assume that what I've just said is true, and I'm, I'm sure they are. She was very involved with all the women who had worked in the store. They had a sort of club, and she was very much part of that. She was very fond of all the women that worked in the store. She felt they were very important, which they were. She was a trailblazer in the retail world in that sense, very much so, very much so. I suppose there were lots of other women. There were seven dames in Melbourne when she became a dame. There were seven of them. She was the seventh, I think, or the sixth. And they were all doing what she was doing, you know. They are all in philanthropy and they were working in hospitals and hospital boards, which there were in those days, Red Cross, various things. And those seven dames were a very important part of Melbourne life, and she was part of that. So in a way, they were all trailblazers, in a sense. I wanted to explore your recollections of your 
following this terrible loss of your father, your mother moving into those broader contributions in philanthropy and in business, as well as being the mother of the store. How do you recall her broader work? Probably looking back, it was very much a result of the beginning of the Second World War. My mother became very involved during the war and then that stayed on. She became very involved with the Red Cross at that stage and the Royal Melbourne Hospital at that stage. So she just automatically became interested in charities, as they were called then, and that's how I think she fell into her life of of philanthropy, which we now call it, and got her involved with so many different charities, which has been passed on. Just thinking about the impact of your family's business on society and the economy, do you remember when you first understood the impact of your family's business and its contribution to the Australian community? Well, the first thing that happened when Meyer Burke Street opened, the Meyer Emporium, as it was called, Mondays became sale days in Meyer stores, whereas previously Monday had always been wash day, washing day for families at home. Monday became rushing into the city for the Meyer sales every Monday. So that was the first thing I remember very clearly. There were wonderful old pictures of Burke Street with the crowds waiting to get in on a Monday morning. My father was a great lover of sales. He changed the fabric a bit of life in Melbourne for women by making them now come into the city on a Monday and not stay home and do the washing. <laughs> I know which I'd prefer. <laughs> <laughs> but washing was much harder, obviously, because of the lack of labour-saving yeah. devices as well. It was hard work. It was a day's work. And did you have a sense of its impact more broadly over the years? I think people regarded the Maya store as very much the heart of the city. Today, it's even more, I'm more aware of it because people I'm still meeting today keep telling me that their great aunt or their great grandmother or their grandmother or their sister in law, <laughs> they all seem to work in Maya at some stage. <laughs> Amazing. Melbourne was such a small place, of course, a very small city when it first opened. And it seemed to me that it must have been the main sort of place to get a job in, in the city because everyone today is still talking about how their grandmother worked there. I wanted to talk your own marriage to Ross Shell Medine from 1950, which strikes me as a wonderful partnership. What do you think were the secrets that made for such a successful family and business partnership? Well, you can be lucky with your partners in life. I mean, it starts off with love and then it you realise that part of it is, of course, that you like doing the same things. You have common interests all down the line, no matter how simple they are or how complicated they are, you have them in common and you build them together. Like Lego, you sort of start building them. You keep adding to it, you know. And that is what I think made the success of what we did. The only problem really for us was that we were still a bit too young to handle what we were doing. <laughs> now, I have to ask you this, given you were so involved in business together, did you keep your relationship and business life separate or were you always talking about business at the dinner table? Yeah, I'm afraid it was very much a daily discussion. But the thing that saved that was, of course, our rural interests, our farm. We both loved the farm and when we were there, 
that was it. And when we had the land up in Queensland, North Queensland, we had a thousand acres of rainforest up there at one stage in our life. That was it. I mean, Melbourne, Victoria was forgotten those times. So you can, I think, have a business and a private life fairly well separated when you want to, when it's necessary to. The only time that I left Ross was when my mother took me around the world for my 40th birthday. I went kicking and screaming because I really didn't want to go. But I had the most wonderful 40th birthday. I was away for three months, and that was the longest time I was ever away from. Ross died suddenly in 1979, a terribly sad time of your life. Are you able to share with us your reflections on those times? Yes, well, you remember the actual date and time, and we were at the farm when Ross dropped with a stroke, and I remember every minute of every day. For the, He lived for about 10 days, and then you remember the first 12 months. I used to remember saying to people, it's not getting better, it's getting worse, you know. But it was a time when Sir John Holland got me involved on the Stroke Foundation board because he'd died of a stroke, which was a helpful thing for John Holland to do at the time. He was the first chairman of the Stroke Foundation. Because we were learning so much about stroke and consequences, it immediately got me out into a new world. I met doctors and neurologists and and people I would never probably have met otherwise if I hadn't been on that board. And I'm still friends with one or two of them still today. And I think the important thing is to have something like that to be able to sort of clasp onto when you're going through grief periods in your life, to have something that concrete that means something that has a feeling that it's helping some other people with the same problem, you know. And then eventually um, a friend started thinking it was time I met somebody else, you know, how they do. (laughs) (laughs) You have caring friends. (laughs) I do. Uh, And I'd say, come and have dinner. And I knew there was one particular one wanted me to go to dinner, and I knew why, because she'd invited Bob Southey to dinner because he was his wife had died. And I remember I was staying with friends at Sorrento on that day, and I remember saying to my hostess down there, I can't go, I just I just can't do this tonight. So she rang up and, and told my friend who was kindly inviting me to dinner that I, I wasn't able to go and I just couldn't make it. And she wasn't pleased. She wasn't pleased because <laughs> she planned that I was going to meet Bob Salvin that night, <sighs> which I didn't. I, I had never actually met him. Seen him around everywhere. They were very social, they were in a different world to us completely. But eventually, eventually we met, and uh, he was terrific. I had 16 years with Bob, 30 years with Ross, minus one month, and 16 years with Bob Salvin. I'm very blessed. I had two fantastic marriages. And that commenced a, a different era in your life, a different world. What did you make of that? You were involved in the Stroke Foundation, but how did you take to the world of philanthropy and the arts? Well, it really was most of my philanthropy had been done before I met Bob Soundy. I mean, cancer, heart, drug, oh, so many other things I had been involved with before I met Bob Soundy. So when I met Bob, it was literally a totally different life. It was definitely wonderful culture, opera and ballet and art and 
people and travel and all the things I hadn't been doing really with Ross. So it, it was a, it was a complete change of life. There wasn't nearly as much philanthropy in those sixteen years. I'd sort of done that. Do you know what I mean? I'm chairman of philanthropy board and I've been chairman of the found Ma family foundations and committees and I'd done a lot of so-called philanthropic things. So with Bob, it, it was just a totally different life. He loved the farm, thank goodness. He loved being up at our farm. So I was able to continue my life there, which I love. One of the stories I really love about you is that you drove a Red Cross ambulance for more than 40 years, transporting polio patients. Now, that's pretty grassroots level philanthropy. What was it that made volunteering your time so important to you in this way? Well, it started that driving when Bob had died, and it's now 25 years since Bob died. I was asked by a friend, a doctor's wife, actually, would I consider putting on a Red Cross uniform and volunteering driving for Red Cross and the polio patients who were at Fairfield, had been at Fairfield all their life. They would love a team of volunteer drivers to take them out on other days. They had hospital drivers who were paid to take them out, and we come in, there were six of us, came in as three, three, three twos. We had a nurse and a driver in each van. We started with about eight different polio patients, and we ended up with two fabulous ones. And the last one that lived was in the Guinness Book of Records because she was the sole living polio patient who still slept in an iron rung at night. And she was a Carlton supporter. And she slept in, a, in one of those old lung metal terrible things that she slept in at night, but she was the only one. The others learned to breathe on a chesty. It was just a lovely thing that to do, to take them out. We became their family, you know, because most of their families had died. And we took them hither and yon and took them out for picnics and we became their family and our children became their children, you know. It was just something we really loved doing. And was that the main reason that made volunteering so good for you? It was very good for me at the time. It really was. Because once again, I was in grief. I needed something to do. But I had befriended, of course, lots of people in the ballet world and the opera world. So, I mean, I was still able to go to concerts and the MSO very particularly. But it was great to have that thing to do that you're going to do, you know, once every two or three weeks you did it. And it wasn't enough, but it was a great start. And we got back a bit into the philanthropic world again with the foundations and things. I wanted to ask you, just reflecting on your experience, your mother's experience, firstly, what, what do you think your mother would make of today's world and the role of women in family businesses today? I think she'd be delighted. I think she would be very happy about it. She always wanted the girls and the family to get involved, but early days of that, they weren't. My brothers, who started their own foundation, simply called the Ma Foundation, my two brothers started in 1959, I think it was, there was never a thought that their sisters should be involved. For about four years after they started, they suddenly one day invited us to go to a meeting, one of their meetings. We were amazed, delighted. So Neil Moore and I went along 
And then eventually they decided that we could be directors of the foundation too. (laughs) Everything was growing in the period of the world. Somehow things happened. And it didn't do any damage, correct? (laughs) Didn't do any damage. So when my mother died, she set a special fund for her four granddaughters. She only had four granddaughters, my two daughters and Lindy's two daughters, the four granddaughters she had. And she set up a fund and she wanted them to use the money in that fund to do good things for women in anything they chose. And they've been for about 20 years now, those four girls would meet my brother Ken's daughter, my brother Bales's daughter, and my two daughters, the four of them. And they'd decide to do a three years year for something. And it varied from music to animals to anything they chose because she wanted them to get themselves involved and choose their own thing. That fund has now, the four granddaughters are so busy themselves now, they've passed it on to other members of the family. And I think Rupert Meyer and his wife are now running the Merlin Meyer Foundation or whatever it was called. (laughs) And the next question from that, what differences do you see from your own experience with your daughters and granddaughters? Oh, well, my own daughters are both very involved in what they love doing. My younger daughter is involved with everything rural, climate, uh, reforestation, regeneration. She's running our farm now, our property now she runs, and she's involved in everything to do with the future of this planet, if I can put it that way. She's very concerned that we talk about climate change she said, Mum, it's not climate's changing, it's, it's the people who have changed. We're doing different things in the world now. We're cutting all the things we used to do we thought were right are now proving to be not right. And it's humanity that's destroying the planet. So that's Lindy. Uh, Sally is uh, very involved in all the family Maya things too. She chairs some of the committees and she cares for people. She loves people. She loves her family. She loves all her nieces and nephews. She loves all her grandchildren. She's got five grandchildren. They're both doing their own thing in their own way, and it's wonderful. I don't see much of them. They're so busy. What legacy do you think the Meyer family has left in the Australian community? Well, apart from at one stage being the largest retailer in the Southern Hemisphere and one of the biggest in the world, we'll leave the retail side now because that's all changed. But that is no doubt was a great legacy. The next one I want to mention is music. My father, in his generosity, gave my shares to what was then the University of Melbourne, to the University Orchestra, uh, with the sole purpose that he wanted them to have four free concerts a year in the open air. Well, we've come forward about 90 years and at this moment, as I speak, the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra, who were the beneficiaries of those shares, which are worth a considerable lot of money today, that enable them to put on the free concerts that Melbourne audiences enjoy. Now in the Music Bowl, originally in the Botanic Gardens, the first four concerts were in the Botanic Gardens until 1959 when Sir Robert Menzies opened the Sydney Mile Music Bowl, where they're now held. But That, I think, was a great, great legacy. My father left 10% of his estate to philanthropy to create the Sydney Mile Trust. 
Your mother challenged the estate of your father, Sydney, so that she could become the trustee. Did she tell you at all about the reasons behind that? Well, certainly not to me. Being the youngest in the family, I missed out on quite a lot of things. <laughs> but uh... <laughs> So how do you understand her rationale? Well, I understand that my father did not make her a trustee of his estate while he still were alive, which was all part of the, the era that women didn't do things like that, so even your own wife, you know. So a couple of years after he died, she applied to become a trustee of his estate, and she won the battle eventually with uh, her fellow trustees. And so she was the first woman to be on the Sydney Meyer Estate Trustee Board, you know. Nowadays, of course, it's quite common. I've got this member of every family now on, on the four trustees of the Sydney Meyer Estate today, and there's one representing each of the four children, of her four children. There may be a boy and there may be a girl, but they're both there as trustees today. And what difference does that make? Well, fairness all around, equal billing, I think it's great. My eldest son, Stephen Shelmerdine, is a trustee of the Sydney Meyer Estate. And so far, up till 2023, there have only been a male member of the family that's been chairman of the estate. We have not yet had one of the girls as a chairman of the estate. I haven't seen that happen yet. I'm sure it will one day. There will be time. I talked early at the beginning of our conversation about the Adelaide Business School Mutual Trust Research and that project, Why the Modern Family Office Matters, found that wealthy families have a significant positive social and economic impact, but lasting impact depends on those families prospering over the generations. From your experience, what's the glue that holds everything together over that time? We always said as a family that, that it's philanthropy that has kept us together. It's the glue that's kept this family together, philanthropy, number one. And I think that still holds today. The thing that keeps us together is the fact that each year we, we have a Christmas party, the whole family. We love celebrations. Cranlana, the family home, it was 100 years two years ago since my father bought. So we had a great celebration. So all the family come together for celebrations like that. We celebrate births in the family and we commemorate in quite a big way deaths in the family. These are the things that I think keep a family together and interest in what each other part of the family is doing, you know. Keeping interested in what your whole family is doing, not just corner of it. It's harder and harder, as, we, as you say, we've got fifth generations on the ground now. The oldest one's about 17, and they'll soon be on with the next, you know. How do you keep the communication flowing and connecting with the growing number of family members? Well, it's hard for someone like me because I have enough technology to do what I want to do and keep in touch. But with modern technology today, it's, it's very easy for them to keep together to acknowledge yourself's presence. They do it in a flash. might take me an hour to do what they do in three minutes, but I can do it. <laughs> so it has never been easy to communicate about anything. You can get an answer to a question in your mind in a minute by going to Google, Mr. Google. But I think you've also got to want to do it, you know. We've got some lovely young members of the family now from different countries and adding new 
color and new interest to the family. I think it's wonderful. And it's easy to keep in touch with them, which I try and do as much as I can. But they're all so busy. <laughs> <laughs> but they sound as if they energize you as well. Yes, they do. And can you comment on the important role of family pets, dogs oh. in particular? <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> Definitely very important. We always had dogs. I don't ever remember us having cats, but we always had dogs. My father loved dogs. My mother loved My mother thought she loved dogs. She Later on in life when she was alone, she had two corgis, one at a time. The first one got run over, unfortunately. They were called Yanto and Yeston after the famous novel, How Green Was My Valley. She just bought Barula and read How Green Was My Valley. She never fed them. She never walked them. The cook fed them every night. She was always far too busy to walking dogs around the street. So we joked about her love of dogs. But we all loved them. We always had dogs at Cranana, always, always one or two. And then when Ross and I were married and finally moved out of the apartment at Cranana into our own house, Yanto, who was the surviving of the two, moved down the street, it was just down the street from Granana. He moved with us, and I used to take him back. Twice a day I'd take him back to Granana. <laughs> and by the time I got home again, he'd be back. <laughs> so my mother finally said, I think you ought to keep him, dear. He obviously wants to be with you and the children. <laughs> and you've graduated to, did I see a terrier, a couple of terriers? Oh, I've always had terriers of some sort. We've had Bachsons, Gorgies. I've got Jack Russells. I've had Jack Russells a lot in the last couple of decades. I've had lovely jacks. Celiums, West Celia, one of those black Scotties, you know, one, I've had all, we've had all sorts of terriers, always had terriers. Never had big dogs. Well, I think my father had big dogs, but we didn't. We had red setters, that's right, at Sorrento. They lived at Kenar. That, that was their home. My father saw them at the weekends. He loved them. And they used to go out and kill chooks every night. There's a chicken farm nearby, and they used to go out every night. <laughs> Kill a few chooks. Dogs were a part of our life, I promise you. I'm not sure what the collective, is it a bark of dogs, the collective noun? I'm not quite sure. <laughs> um, Lady Saudi, thank you. It's been an absolute privilege and a pleasure to have this conversation with you. Thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me. In the next episode of The Purpose of Wealth, we'll explore succession planning with Eliza Newton, the Director of Trustee Services at Mutual Trust in Melbourne. Clients may not realise that the lawyer they're dealing with just doesn't have the depth of experience and knowledge that's required in order to develop a good plan. We come across that regularly. Part of the work we do is then working with the clients to show you've got a very simple will, but it's not sufficient. It doesn't do all these other things that really need to be put in place. If this conversation has sparked more questions and you'd like more information or to find out about the groundbreaking research why the modern family office matters, head to mutualtrust.com.au or email us at purposeofwealth at mutualtrust.com.au. I'm Narelle Hooper. I'll catch you next time.